0: All right, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's good to be with you, brothers and sisters, this morning. Um, please open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We're going to be looking at the Word of God this morning, continuing our equipping our series on uh, the Bible as God's perfect word, study of uh, Bibliology. I don't know about you, but it's been really encouraging to go through this series. It's every week. I've been telling some of the brothers and sisters here every week that I study and prepare for this time. It's just been so sweet, so uh, reassuring, and even invigorating uh, for me. Uh, As I look at what the Bible says about itself, uh, just, it is truly a treasure. Uh, Along those lines, I want to read Psalm 119, beginning in verse 137, it says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth." Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, yes, Lord, we do pray that you would give us understanding. Help us to understand your word, Lord. We, we understand that it's a book. And that we can understand the words in some sense that are on the page in front of us. But Lord, for it to mean anything of spiritual value to us, uh, you have to enable that. And so we cry out, Lord, as it says in Proverbs, we, we cry out for your understanding. We ask, Lord, give it to us, Lord, grant it by your mercy. It's an act of your mercy and grace that you You enable us, Lord, to receive your word and understand it truthfully. And so, Lord, we pray that even if the trials of life are great, Lord, as the psalmist says here, even though trouble and anguish overcome us and come upon us, Lord, we pray that your commandments, your word, would be our delight this morning. No matter what our circumstances this morning, we come to you and we want to delight in you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This morning, we're going to be looking at inerrancy uh, as far as it comes to the Word of God, inerrancy. And you can see the Word in there that is without error. So up to this point, I just want to do a quick review, just real brief. Up to this point we in this series, we've seen that in... In Scripture, God reveals himself. In Scripture, God reveals himself. And we've also seen that the Bible was produced by God directly. That's what it means when it says that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is produced, created by God directly through human agents. And so therefore... Because scripture, in Scripture, God is revealing himself, and because it comes from him directly through human agents, therefore God's word is authoritative, it is true, it is trustworthy, we should prize it above all other books in this world. Now this morning, as we look at inerrancy, what is at stake here is the truthfulness of And the trustworthiness of God Himself. The first point in your notes is the definition of inerrancy. A short definition is that inerrancy means without error, without error. It is free of defect or flaw. God's word is without error, it is free of defect or flaw. That's what it means. We hold to the view of, iner- of the inerrancy of Scripture because we believe that God is truthful and trustworthy. It is, it's grounded in Him. Notice in Psalm 119, verse 40, we just read it. It says that your words are very pure. Your words are very pure. Notice whose words they are. Again, whose words are they? Whose word is it? Yours, God's. This is speaking of God. God's word is very pure. Pure. It is because it is God's Word is that it's very pure. There's plenty other books throughout history. There's plenty of books that are helpful, that might have some kind of wisdom or aid to our lives. But this book, the Bible, because it is, it is the Word of God, His Word, because of that, It is very pure. No other book can claim this the purity that the Bible claims for itself. Hodge and Warfield, you have hit their quote here. I'll read it. It's a lengthy one, but I figured I would put the lengthy one, the lengthy quote, uh, instead of the, the short one, just so that you have this one to chew on this week. When it comes to inerrancy, it means this, that the Bible is absolutely errorless in any any of the subjects it touches on in teaching. Whether statements about history, natural history, ethnology, archaeology, geography, natural science, physical or historical facts psychological or philosophical principles or spiritual doctrine and duty in all of these things the bible is absolutely errorless without error if it, if the bible talks about something you can trust it basically what it's saying now we're going to get into some of the details of this. Inerrancy, when we talk about the errorless of, errorlessness, uh, the purity, perfection of Scripture, it applies to the autographs. It applies to the autographs. What is that? That is the original documents that were penned by the human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so when we talk about the perfection the absolute inerrancy when we talk about this doctrine in in its in its most perfect or fullest or purest form we are specifically talking about the autographs the original documents that Moses and Isaiah and Paul and Luke wrote, what they wrote, those original documents were absolutely pure. Now, of course, we understand today that none of those original documents exist today. These original documents Manuscripts, they're called, do not exist today. We can't go somewhere to a museum and find those documents specifically. Throughout the ages, copies were made. Right? So you had the original author write the original autograph, the original document. Copies of that were made, and then copies of copies were made throughout the years. To the point where we have what is in front of us today. Now, the the, the doctrine of biblical preservation. I know we're getting nerdy, but the the doctrine of preservation of the Bible. We're going to get to that later on in the series, so I don't want to spend too much time on this. But here we simply just need to point out that the 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 copying process from the original to the to the next generation to the next generation, those that copying process throughout the years uh, did of course have the obvious risk of introducing errors into the text. We don't deny that today. So the to whole to inerrancy doesn't deny that. However, however, It is clear from biblical and archaeological evidence that God has provided, or excuse me, God has providentially preserved these copies and these translations. And again, we're going to get into the details, the fine details of that, maybe not the fine details, but some of the details of that in a a few weeks God providentially preserved the copies and the translations through the ages, so much so that we are certain today that what we have in our Bibles accurately represent the content of the original autographs. We can be confident in what we have, especially if you start talking about the Documents that we have today that are in the original Hebrew and the original Greek, those we can be extremely confident of. Textual scholars, textual scholars are confident that scripture translations today, if this' is a good translation, that's why you need to pick your translation wisely. New American Standard. Uh, English Standard Version, uh, New King James. Those are some of the better ones. When you start getting into NIV and the Living Translation, those take a little more liberty or room to, uh, what's the word, embellish or clarify what's being said. It uses more words than what's there in the original Greek. And it adds words or takes away words that might be confusing that they believe is getting to the main point of the author. Anyways, textual scholars today, though, are confident that the Scripture translations today, if it's a good uh, biblical translation, are more than 99% accurate in comparison to the original manuscript. So these are scientists. These are um, really smart men and women. They prove scientifically and through this specific field of, of understanding and, and, and uh, science that what we have today is more than 99% accurate to what Isaiah, Moses, Luke, Paul, what they all wrote. 99%. And you're talking thousands and thousands of years later. And where there are issues of quote unquote error, because people that reject inerrancy would point to this, but wherever there are issues of error in our present day documents, our present day scriptures, the difference, the the discrepancy, does not affect biblical teaching or doctrine in any way. It's decimal points, it's numbers that doesn't really that doesn't change the teaching of the passage. It's small things, it's commas, it's punctuations, it's, it's things like this. I want to read a quote to you that illustrates this to help us wrap our minds around this concept. It is difficult. The doctrine of inspiration is worthwhile even though the originals have perished. An illustration may be helpful. Suppose we wish to measure the length of a pencil. So, with a tape measure, we measure it at six and a half inches. But a more carefully made office ruler indicates that that same pencil is six and nine sixteenths inches. And then we take that same pencil and we check it with an engineer's scale and we find it to be slightly more than 6.58 inches. And then we further measure it, carefully measuring with a steel scale under laboratory conditions, and that reveals it to be 6.577 inches. Not satisfied still, we we send the pencil to Washington, where master gauges indicate a length of 6.5774 inches. The master gauges themselves are checked against the standard United States yard marked on a platinum bar preserved in Washington. Did you know that? Did you know that? There's a platinum bar in Washington. That's the standard. Now, suppose that we should read in the newspaper that a clever criminal had run off with that platinum bar, melted it down for the precious metal. As a matter of fact, this once ha- happened to Britain's Standard Yard. But what difference would this make to us? Very little. None of us have ever, has ever even seen the platinum bar. Many of us perhaps never realized that it existed. Yet we casually used tape measures, rulers, scales, and similar measuring devices with great confidence. These approximate measurements get their value from their being dependent on more accurate gauges. But even the approximate measurement has great value if it has had a true standard behind it. So you see what we're saying? That platinum bar with with the measurements on on it, even if that is melted and we'd never have that again, we still have all of these other uh, measuring devices that were measured according to that bar. And so we can take those measuring devices and have great confidence in those measurements. Just because that bar ceases to exist doesn't make these measurements null and void. So it is with the scriptures. That original document is no longer in existence. But from that original document, we get all of these other documents, these manuscripts throughout the ages. And we see that they are all so similar together so that we can see the sovereign hand of God through the ages preserving that measurement, as it were. And just because we can't uh, go somewhere and look at the original Document the original platinum bar doesn't make what we have in our hands today any less reliable Because they got they got their source from the original you follow Very helpful, so Even though Inerrancy in its purest form in its purest application applies to just the autographs it's still we can still apply it with great certainty to the Bible that you have in front of you, that it is pure. So you can say that the Word of God is pure, and it is without error. You can say that, Christian, today. Now, throughout time, there has been many challenges against this doctrine of inerrancy. That's number two on your notes, the challenge against inerrancy. Now, unbelievers have been saying with great energy the last couple of centuries especially that Scripture has errors in it, therefore it's not always true, it's not always trustworthy. And so you have two options if you believe that teaching. If you believe that the Scripture has errors in it, you have two options. One. That God did not speak truthfully because he is deceitful, or two, that God was not able to produce or preserve the Bible without error because he is limited in power. So either he's a liar or he's weak. If you are going to say that the Bible has error in it, you have two options. God God is either a liar who deceives us. He told us that the word of God is pure when it's really not. Or when he tried to give us the pure word, he was hindered by us, by the human authors, and he was not able to overcome the, the human limitations, and so he is not powerful enough to give us a pure word, even though he wanted to. Either he's wicked or he's weak. Either he's a liar or he's limited. And this attacks the character and nature of God. So if somebody challenges this in your conversations, you defend the character and nature of God himself. You go there, prove how he is trustworthy. Now, this, this doctrine, this teaching of, of errancy, this teaching of errors in Scripture has slowly but surely crept into the church, especially these past couple hundred years. Quote-unquote theologians and quote-unquote Christian preachers have adopted the false claims that the Bible Is true in doctrines of faith, but it has errors or limitations in, or excuse me, it has errors or limitations to the times that they were written in. So they'll say, yes, we can go to it for good morals and for direction generally in life, for good stories that we can glean ideas from, but you can't say that everything in the Bible is true. You can't say that every word matters can't do that why why would these so-called theologians and so-called christian preachers adopt such things such teachings the scripture is clear that they are motiv- motivated by an unwillingness to accept all that the scripture says right if there are errors then, I, then who's to decide what the, where the errors are? If I can trust some parts and not other parts, if I can accept some parts and not other parts, then who's the gauge? Who's the platinum bar? These theologians, these preachers would say they are. Or culture or science is. But really, it's motivated by an unwillingness to accept all that the Scripture says. There's something in the Bible that they don't like. And to get around that, to get around the authority that Scripture has over them, they, they just say, well, you're not perfect and you can't tell me what to do. They say that to God, they say that to His Word. There are some teachings that go against their beliefs. So rather than admitting that they're corrupt in their beliefs, they say that the Bible is corrupt. You see? They're seeking an excuse for their sin. It goes back to this. It's so, it's so simple. God's Word is so clarifying. I love it. He says in 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. See, that's where this comes from. These destructive heresies Peter talks about, for example, is that there are errors in Scripture and it's not trustworthy. That's a destructive heresy. That just basically takes the Bible and puts it next to Shakespeare and puts it on the same plane. I can learn things from Shakespeare. I can learn things from the Bible. And they're equally authoritative. They're equally worth my devotion. And so, as a result, they deny the master, right? They deny God. Because, remember, to attack the purity of the word of God is to attack the purity of the character and nature of God. They're connected. And so, as they introduce this destructive heresy, like there are errors in Scripture, they deny the master who is connected to those Scriptures and say that he is impure a liar or weak notice the source of it all their sensuality following their sensuality it's their sinful desires that's where this is coming from so if you hear of a Of a preacher or a teacher or somebody with some YouTube channel, and they twist the word of God, you can be sure that they are following their sensuality, that they're trying to make an excuse for their sins. They are saying, their main argument is saying, yes, the principles and the spiritual teachings of Scripture are from God, and yes, sure, they're perfect. However, they say, We cannot say that every single word or stroke of the pen is perfect. Now to this we go to number three on your notes. And first we need to simply look how Jesus read his copy of the Bible. Remember, Jesus did not have the original manuscript. He had a copy of a copy of a copy and so on. Notice what he says in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. He's saying that the word of God will endure and last longer than the heavens and the earth that heavens and earth will melt away before the word of God is compromised, before it starts to crumble underneath the weight of time. Now, when he says here, it, it, it's, it's striking the words that he uses here, the smallest letter. When he talks about the smallest letter, that's the Greek word uh, for iota right we've heard that not one iota of something is just talking about a little bit this iota is comes from the hebrew yod and it's just that little mark that's how big it is he's saying that one little mark will not pass away that one letter Because that letter is like an I or a Y in Hebrew. That one small stroke. It's a little hook. He says not only this, but the the smallest stroke. So the smallest letter, that is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. But not only that, the stroke, the smallest stroke, what is that? Well, that's a serif. We're gonna get nerdy here. But it is so encouraging when when we come out the other end, all right? He says this stroke. Let me let me show you a couple of Hebrew letters. So this is called the WOW. This is like a W or a V in English. Now There's another Hebrew letter that's very similar to this. It's it's this. This is called the Zion. It's, It's the Z in English, right? Notice the difference between these two. What's the difference? It's this little hook. He said, he says, not one little hook to differentiate one letter from another, that smallest of stroke, not one of those will pass away from God's word. It's that dependable. It's that accurate. It's that trustworthy, Christian. Stunning, isn't it? uses these very specific words. It's, it's, it's kind of like the there's, there's different kinds of uh, fonts in, in uh, our writings, right? So you can do like a, you can write a T, but some T's, you know, they have these little I, I can't draw, but they have these little hooks at the end of it, right? if you want to be really official. and then some have don't have that. He's talking about these little hooks. This this thing. You can trust it to that level of accuracy. Amazing. That's how sure that Christ was of his copies of copies of copies. You can trust it to that level of accuracy. Stunning. That's how Christ viewed the word. Is that how you view the word? No. That's one verse for the biblical grounds of inaccuracy. Look at this verse. It's another one that we've gone to time and time again through this series. It says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture is inspired by God. Meaning, again, it's the product of God's direct work. So, the one biblical ground of, uh, or excuse me, another biblical ground of inerrancy is the nature of scripture. What's the nature of scripture according to this verse? Is it. Made in some factory somewhere, inspired by God, that's its nature, it's divine. What you have in your hands, Christian, is a very handiwork of God himself. As much as you look at a sunset and say, man, God is an, is an amazing artist, have you ever done that? Just stopped and looked at the sunset and said, God made that. And just take it in, take it in the beauty. Have you ever looked at a landscape or, or the, the shores of, of the ocean and looked out and just been stunned at the handiwork of God? You can do that same thing to the words that are in front of you, to the Bible, and just be stunned at his handiwork. See how wise and amazing and powerful God is. The Bible and every word in it is directly owing to God. That is, we trace back every word to Him as the source. Not only this, but its source. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, notice, who initiated the Scriptures according to this verse? Who got it going, as it were? Yeah. It's the Holy Spirit. It's men who were moved by the Holy Spirit. So yes, there were men moved, men wrote, men spoke, but they were moved by the Holy Spirit and then behind the Holy Spirit, they spoke from God. That's source. The, the source of Scripture is God himself. You cannot trace the word of God back to man's interpretation of events. Look what it says. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So it's not from that. It's not from their own interpretation. They didn't experience things and then go into a dark room and think about it and then come out the room and they have their explanation of what they saw in the life of Jesus, for example. That's not what Scripture is. As you read through the Old Testament and the accounts of Moses, as you read through the Gospels and the accounts of our dear Savior, it's not just a history book. It's not just some guy retelling what happened. You're reading the words of God. It's not just some guy, some author, interpreting what they saw. It's not Moses interpreting the events of the Exodus. It's not Matthew interpreting the the miracles of Jesus. It's not Luke interpreting the preaching and teaching of Jesus. No, it's God's Word. You cannot trace the Word of God back to man's interpretation of events, nor can you trace it back to man's will. Look again. No prophecy in verse 21 was ever made by an act of human will. So it's not human will. So somebody didn't just get up one morning and think, you know, I, I need to contribute to society. I need to write a letter to this group of people at this church. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit down. And I'm gonna write the um, the book of Romans today. It's not how it happened. It's not from their own will from their own initiative. Scripture, rather, was written by men who were first moved by the Holy Spirit so that when they wrote or spoke, they wrote or spoke from God. God is the ultimate source. One more proof, biblical proof of the inerrancy of Scripture, that what God says He means, and He didn't mess up, as He had the men wrote, write it, is the fulfillment of Scripture itself. Fulfilled prophecies throughout the ages prove the inerrancy of Scripture. God always did what He said He would do to the finest detail. So I'm just going to read from a list that I have. It's estimated that there's over 300, 300 prophecies in Scripture that were fulfilled. We see this most clearly in the prophecies of the Messiah, of the Christ. Let me read a few to you, more than a few. I hope this encourages you as we close our time. These are all things that the Lord predicted, or rather foretold. God foretold that would happen in the life of His Son when He became man. Genesis 3, that he would be born of the seed of a woman. Genesis 12, he would be born of the seed of Abraham. Genesis 17, born of the seed of Isaac. And Numbers 24, born of the seed of Jacob. Genesis 49, that he would be a descendant from the tribe of Judah. And Isaiah 9, 7, that he would be the heir of the throne of David. Daniel 9, that predicted the time of Jesus' birth. Down to the year. Isaiah 7 told us, foretold that he would be born of a virgin. Micah 5 told us of the location that he would be born in Bethlehem. Jeremiah 31 that it would be in the context of the slaughter of the innocent children. Hosea 11 told us of the flight to Egypt that. He would come from Bethlehem, but yet also from Egypt. Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 told us that he would have a forerunner in the form of John the Baptist. Psalm 2, that he'd be declared the Son of God, which he did declare of himself. Isaiah 9, that he would have a ministry to Galilee. Deuteronomy 18 called him a prophet to come. Isaiah 61, said that he would come to heal the brokenhearted. Isaiah 53 told us that he would be rejected by his own, the Jews. Psalm 110 told us that he would be like Melchizedek in his priestly duties. Zechariah 9 told us of the triumphal entry that he would have into Jerusalem. Psalm 41 told us that he would be betrayed by a dear close friend. Zechariah 11, that that betrayal would be done and he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 35 told us that he would be accused by false witnesses. Isaiah 53 said that he would be silent in all of his accusations. Isaiah 50 told us that he would be spat upon and smitten by men. Psalm 35 told us that he would be hated without reason, which the pagan king testified to. Isaiah 53 told us that he would be a vicarious sacrifice, that is, a sacrifice in our place. Isaiah 53 also tells us that he would be crucified with transgressors to the left and to the right, he was, in fact. Zechariah 12 says that his hands would be pierced. Psalm 22 says that he would be scorned and mocked. Psalm 69 told us that he would be given vinegar and gall. In his death, Psalm 109 said that he would pray for his enemies in his death. Psalm 22 said that the soldiers would gamble for his coat. Psalm 34 told us that no bones in his body would be broken, though he would die a violent death. Zechariah 12 told us that his side would be pierced in his death. Isaiah 53 told us that he would be buried with the rich, which he was. He was given a rich man's grave. Psalm 16 and 49 told us that he would rise from the dead. And Psalm 68 told us that he would ascend to the right hand of God. Every single and last one of these prophecies came true to the T. You can be confident, Christian, in the word of God, that it is pure, it's trustworthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, you're so good to give us such a pure word. Lord, I pray that we would be attentive to it whenever we read it, that we would, ch- we would cherish it, Lord, that we would value it like it's finest of gold. And not only that, but we would delight in it like it's the sweetest of honey. Lord, we love you, and so we love your word. And Lord, we pray even now that your word would be preach and taught with delight and with authority and with power and with this certainty Lord that we would read the word and and teach the word to others with this level of certainty and authority not in ourselves Lord but from you and Lord, we thank you, Lord, for uh, using us, Lord, to teach your word, to preach your word. That you gave us eyes to see. You gave us the mind of Christ to understand the word. You give us the Holy Spirit to illumine it to our hearts. So that when we read it, Lord, we receive it. And we treasure it and we're molded by it. Lord, I pray for this next hour that that's exactly what would happen, that you would use your pure, perfect word to accomplish your pure and perfect design. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.